Hey folks, welcome to another episode of the Impact Real Estate Podcast brought to you by Jackson Lucas Executive Search. My name is Julio Lara. I am the producer of this fine podcast, a little special edition of the podcast as we start winding down the year here in 2022, heading into the new season of the Impact Real Estate Podcast. Just wanted to come here on here for a second and kind of guide you through the next couple of weeks uh, as we get you ready for this interview here with Cameron Cameron Gunther, uh, who is the CEO of Peg Companies. Uh, great interview here with him uh, and Chris and Lisa. Uh, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be winding down the, this uh, season of the podcast, uh, getting you ready for season two. Uh, a lot of great programming coming up in the pipeline. But first, we're going to wind the year down. Uh, go through some uh, best of episodes with Chris, bringing back Michael, uh, bringing back uh, Victoria Whitaker uh, to talk with Lisa and kind of go through the highs of the podcast, of which there are many. Uh, we're really excited to talk to you guys about all the great lessons that we learned throughout the year. So stay tuned for those in the next couple of weeks. Um, follow us on uh, Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Podbean, wherever you get your podcast. Um, and like I said, enjoy this interview with Cameron Gunther, CEO of Pet Companies. All right, Cameron, thanks for coming on the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. It's a nice, sunny, cold day here in uh, Provo, Utah, but... It's winter yeah. time. It's it's snowy. Yeah, I was I was we were just saying I was up in Tahoe last weekend or this couple, up till yesterday. It was all snowy up up there. I grew up in the snow up back in the northeast, and I was like, it was cool for a couple of days. I was like, I need to get out of here. Too much cold, too much snow. Um, I like I'm here in the Bay Area. I like the a little bit. Of, I've gotten accustomed to the warmer weather. Well, we're we're excited this year. We've got a lot of snow already. And hopefully, it keeps coming. Yeah, you like that? Are you a skier or out, outdoorsman? Yeah, I ski on occasion, but I'm more of a water skier in the summer, and there's no water in the lakes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Do they Maybe. freeze over? Uh, the, the southern lakes don't. The ones up around here do. So, But we just need water in the mountains to keep the lakes full. Right. Are you from uh, Utah? I'm from Idaho. A uh, little small town in Idaho, uh, southeast Idaho. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Farm did town. Have, did you have dreams, aspirations of being a real estate mogul? No, not at all. <laughs> I was I was going to be an accountant. <laughs> you, know, you, you dreamt big of being an accountant. You and, Actually, you and I was going gonna, gonna to be a professional football player, to be honest. Oh, yeah? Big, yeah. big dreams. <laughs> Who was your what was your team? Uh growing up I was a Dolphins fan, so but I play I played college football, but I'll tell you it it once you get into it, it's a much bigger task than when you're a little kid and thinking it looks fun. I'm sure. I can only imagine what it's like to be a football player and the abuse that your body takes and the amount of practice you need to put in. It's gotta be intense. Yeah. Lisa's it's a, a hockey mom. She's a hockey mom. Yes, and at a very junior level, I see what it's like to have to uh, put in the hours and the intensity. So I can only imagine football at college level. 
Well, when I grew up, it's not as much as it is now. I mean, these kids are just going, going, going. If you're in a sport, you're going year round. It's crazy. Yeah. Year round. That can't be good for their bodies. As a matter of fact, it's, when my son was little, I would say to him, I'm not begging you to get out of bed for this in the morning. I'll get you up for school. But for hockey, you set your alarm, you wake up, and you come w- wake me up. And he did. Yeah. so. Yeah. Little, Teaches them responsibility. She's, she's tough. She's tough cookie. <laughs> so, Cameron, you are the CEO of Peg Companies. P-E-G. Yes, Peg Companies. We just say it as Peg now. Can you describe to the world, the universe, who knows who's listening, could be aliens, what Peg is? So Peg really started as a real estate development company, but we've evolved into a a fully integrated real estate investment company where we're managing our own assets. Um, We do some third-party management, property management, but we really are an investment management firm. We develop our own assets. Sometimes we build or renovate our own assets. Um, And we're, we're just trying to take the full scale of it so we can control the real estate investment from beginning to end. Right. And then geographic, like where, where are the assets? What type of asset classes geographically? Where are they? Um, yeah, so we do hospitality um, asset class. We have a few office buildings, not much, but multifamily, and they're spread throughout the country. I think we're in 21 different states. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and then... And, and, and two countries. We've got uh, two assets in Canada. Oh, yeah? Is it different yeah. investing in Canada than here? A little, um, just because you got the their sales tax is a little bit different, and then employment tax is definitely different. Much higher, I assume. Yeah, because of yeah, but they don't have. I mean, it's all social medicine, so. Yeah. So fifty percent of their income basically goes to tax. Yeah. We could do a whole podcast just on that. (laughs) I know. How did you get in the hospitality world? Like, what do you what are you seeing in hospitality now? Like, Lisa has a strong connection to hospitality. Um, it's an asset class we've be, we're looking to build out more. So, like, what do you what do you how did you get in there? Like, what do you see happening right now in hospitality? Yeah, so and what I type did, of, what type of hospitality? We do we do select service, um, and we usually do ground up. We do some acquisitions, but I got into hospitality back in two thousand five on a kind of an RFP in a city where I used to be a city manager of the neighboring city and they put an RFP they wanted a hotel built and we proposed with another group to build a Hilton Garden Inn and next to a convention center and really that kicked us off we sold that asset and then we really stuck with multifamily and office a little bit of retail really through 2010 and then 2010 came we saw an opportunity to jump back in because there was a lot of distressed hotel assets and we had the capital to go um, start working on that uh, program again. And since then, we've built uh, a fairly good portfolio of, of hotels uh, from mostly Marriott's, some Hyatt's. We've had some Hilton's. Um, but we have about 42 assets now in the hospitality space across the country. Wow. That's significant. So it's been good. We had just before COVID, we bought 13 assets from Blackstone 
of which I think 11 of them were um, residence inns. The intent was they were losing their brand. They were first generation. They would they had a finite life left in their brand, and our intent was to buy them, good cash flow, run them, and then when the brand got close to either we had to do a big pip or um, the brand expired, we'd convert them to multifamily. And so okay. the um, the pandemic sped that up a little bit <laughs> So, because we didn't get the cash flow we thought. So we've started to convert some of those early. And then we even actually went because we saw a bunch of opportunities in that extended stake space to buy some. So we bought, we started a fund just to buy those assets to convert immediately. So we've done about 10 of those now. And I have to know, what did you think as the occupancy was going down and down and down during the pandemic? Because I know what it was like in my house. So I'm just curious what it was like in yours. Um, I was here a lot of hours. <laughs> Just trying to figure out how, I mean, we, there were some properties that had very minimal of any occupancy and then just trying to keep employees because we're managing them as well. Mm. Right. And so we're just trying to say, what do we do with these employees? I'm on the phone with legislators trying to figure out what's next. And so, um, you know, we, we figured it out. We, we shifted fairly quickly where we had to reduce staff, which was tough. But as part of that reduction of staff on our side is we went to a bunch of our partners, including us as a company, and we tried to provide a weekly um, subsistence of food and other things for them uh, just so they felt they had something uh, because we just we didn't furlough them. We actually laid them off. So yeah. it was difficult. Um we came out, didn't lose any assets. The banks worked with us. The lenders worked with us, which was, which was huge. Yeah. And you mentioned about raising a fund. Like where, how are you typically fundraising? Is it, is it more friends and family? Um, have you done more, like, have you gotten broken into the institutional stuff and. Yeah. So recently with this extended state conversion fund and a build for rent fund that we just launched, those have have jumped, put us into that institutional investor. But prior to that, it's been uh, friends and family and high net worth family offices mm. um, that uh, really some of them acted like institution because they're billion dollar plus family offices. So we're now really transitioning more into the institutional investor range with funds. But we also do direct raises and most of our direct raise uh, we do some JVs with institution, but most of our direct raises high net worth families and, and high net worth individuals. Gotcha. How many funds have you raised to date? So in our fourth fund, nice. um, that's a true fund. And then we have strategies, about three or four other commingled strategies. So overall, we're managing about $2 billion. Uh, we mm. have about $2 billion of AUM. Okay. And then I've had, we have a couple of clients who are trying to transition from more like the, yeah, you know, the family offices and the high net worth, yada, 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 to more institutional fundraising. Was it, was that hard to do? And how did you go about that? Yeah, it is. It's a much different, um, I guess it's a much different raise because they're looking at track record. Hmm. Um, and if you don't have a track record as a company or a track record in a fund, it's, they're doing additional due diligence and you somehow have to build a relationship there 
or have an emerging manager invest in yet. And so that was for, for us, it was a little bit harder to break into. We fortunately had a couple of relationships that helped us out um, mm. through that with smaller funds. Um, and so we, we still got a long ways to go to really be one of the, um, even a, a mid-size institutional investor or yeah. a, a fund. So, Did you have to hire someone like internally as a capital raiser? Or were you, did you hire like a placement agent as well? Or So we haven't, and you know, we haven't hired a placement agent and we've talked about it back and forth. We actually just, we hired internal salespeople. Okay. Um, and I have a whole department, which is our sales and marketing of, of capital raisers. We got three of them plus some support staff. Oh, that's cool. Three of them, huh? Yeah. It's interesting because so many people that I speak with, and maybe it's because I was an accountant as well, want to go from being an accountant or some kind of finance person to sit where you sit. So what do you think was your kind of lucky break to, to make the move? I want to turn that around. I Maybe I don't want to sit where I sit sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm actually a little bit different because as much as I wanted to be an accountant, I lasted about six months as a CPA because I absolutely hated sitting at a desk, doing the same thing over and over. I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I was in a, uh, got the experience. Uh, I became a city manager, a finance director, and then city manager, learned the kind of the entitlement ropes and understand how cities work. So for me, it just kind of evolved into, you know, all the experience I had through my career, starting as an accountant and understanding numbers, which I tell everybody, if you can understand numbers, um, it's great. Now, not everybody that's an accountant, I will tell you, can be a CEO or sit in this desk because, and I don't think everybody wants to either. Because you, you there's so many different things you have to know and understand and be able to um, have had the experience doing to be able to make those decisions. And I still am trying to figure out if I have enough experience to make some of the decisions we're making. Let's hope the investors aren't listening. <laughs> <laughs> I tell them that, though. I mean, I look, it's it's I'm not perfect. And we're going to do the best we can. And we're going to protect. One thing we will do is uh, we'll protect your assets and we'll tell you the good, bad, and the ugly. Um, and you're going to get that from me. Yeah. They trust, they trust the person, not necessarily the investment. I mean, I guess they have to trust the investments too, but it's all about trusting the person that they're dealing with. They're going to be honest with them and, you know, be conservative with their, their capital and all that jazz. So you, you grew up in, and you said earlier, uh, in North or Southeastern, uh, Idaho, right? Yep. Yep. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Tell me about you as, as a kid. Like, did you, I mean, I, I always like to find if there's something in entrepreneurs that like maybe, yeah, I saw them have a chip on their shoulder or something where they're like, you know, they don't like taking orders from people. They think they can do it better or they, they like something, you know, there's something going on. Like, did you have any, any of that stuff as a kid? Well, be it, growing up on a farm like I did, I was always out fixing or I was out building something, always trying to create something. Um, or if I was working and something broke down and I wanted to go out and hang out, I mm. went and figured out how to fix it because I had to get my job done, right? right. Or our butts would, you would get our butts kicked or, you know, 
whatever whatever happened back then on the farm in the woodshed you just don't know <laughs> yeah but, you know what they um, say what happens on the farm stays on the farm <laughs> that's, that's true. i like that we'll keep we'll, that's what we'll say but yeah i think we were and then i had um five other brothers and we were always just trying to create different things and and have fun and i think that creative side of um my growing up is what really caused me to get into this space that I'm in. It's because I love to see redevelopment projects. I love to see an area revitalize and build a new community or, or see things happen where guests can have a fun experience or our tenants, our residents um, in our buildings uh, get to experience something new. So I, for me, that's where I get my excitement. I think that's what caused I don't know if I'm an entrepreneur or if I just love to see that uh, part of the business. Um, did you, yeah, did you like uh, growing up, I didn't know about many different career trajectories out there. And so I was, you know, my dad was an engineer. My mom was a, a nurse. I didn't want to be either of those. Um, and so I was going to be a lawyer because I'm like, I didn't know, you know, I get lawyer sounds like a good thing, maybe. Right. <laughs> and I ended up doing what I'm doing, but, um, did you know about, I mean, you knew about farming. Do you know anything, anything else? Yeah. So similar to you, I mean, I grew up, my whole family, my extended family, they were all farmers and we grew up in a small town of a hundred people. And so what did I mean, you guys whole, grow? What did you, we farm? had, we did have potatoes. We had a dairy farm and we had hay and barley. So it was a bunch of different things. So, so back to that, I didn't, I didn't know what careers were. I knew what football was because I watched it on TV and I loved to play mm -hmm. basketball. We loved to do sports. But then, you know, it was, I don't even know how, even as a kid, you know, I got into high school, I think I took a business class and thought, geez, this accounting sounds fun. You know, it looks like they make a ton of money. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that too. It's so funny. <laughs> as a CPA. And so I didn't know really anything else. I didn't, I did not like the medical stuff. And so mm. I thought, look, I'm good at, I'm good at numbers and this looks fun and looks like they make a lot of money. And that's, that's what I decided to do. And once I decided that I was in it. There you go. And you, you went far enough to get your CPA, which is impressive. So I never got licensed. I passed, but I never got licensed because I didn't, you got to spend two years, right? Oh and, yeah. Um, I'm sure Lisa got did the put all the time in. I didn't because I couldn't stand it. <laughs> I put the time in because I thought, like you, that this was going to make me like the most successful person in the world. And then I looked up at the senior partners that I worked for and said, "I don't think I want their life because they're still working 22 hour days." How does you know? So yeah, it's um, well, I probably it's just as long still as working. The mystique. I'm probably still working 22 hours a day, but I enjoy this type of thing. And then it's not work, right? Yeah. Yeah. Different. I need to know where you were in the birth order of your brothers and sisters. Were you oldest, youngest, somewhere in the middle? I was the second by 11 months. Sec okay. So Irish twin, because I guess. We, we, have a, we have one of our team members here, and she did recruiting for West Point. And she was telling me today that it was very interesting to her that anybody who came to the school that she found that was first or second of a large family stayed and was more successful than if they 
if they were like later in the birth order or had less siblings because it's she felt that there was nothing that taught you grit and tenacity and how to be a leader like being the eldest of a bunch of siblings so yeah i'm sure that was part of it for you yeah <laughs> that's pretty interesting enough said <laughs> i know it was interesting i can probably see that just because i had i mean there were five of us and my brother and i were the oldest under the age of five yeah. and then there were wow. two more that came after that so it it was uh we had a lot of responsibility <laughs> And how did you transition into real, like, what was your first exposure to real estate? When I left city management, I went to work for a general contractor doing business development for him. And mostly what I was doing is ask, I mean, his clients, as part of getting the build job, were asking me to, to help them out with the cities on their developments mm. and the commercial space. And so I ended up doing that and I'd help them because I understood some tax and what tax laws were on the real estate side and so i'd give them some advice and then i ended up started doing some consulting for one of the groups and that's really what kicked me off into starting the company in 2003 um, on the development so i really i started doing consulting for real estate developers and then decided look we can we can do this ourselves because i'm doing most of the stuff for them so you're you I just didn't your... have the money like they had it. Yeah, yeah. Right. Details, details. So the, what kind of consulting were you doing? Like, was it entitlement? Because you worked at the city, so you understood how to yeah. get things entitled? Yeah, so basically? I did enti entitlement work for them. And then a, the three deals, I did a tax incentive deal where the, I got the cities to pay for the infrastructure or give some kind of um, tax incentive or rebate uh, for the development to happen. And so you started, you, you're like, all right, I'm doing this for some other develop. You know, they're making all the money. I'm getting paid, but you know, they're making all the money off this stuff and they're not so smart. Um, and so how did you make, I mean, there's a lot of people in that seat right now who are like doing what you were doing. How did you make that transition from, yeah, I think doing, from doing, doing, the, doing your own, from, own deals? From doing the consulting, I was fortunate to the, one of the groups I was doing the consulting with that I said, look, I'm going to. I'm going to go off. I'm going to do a couple of these things. I've got a couple of properties I think I can tie up. And I put a little bit of money in it, uh, but I did all the the work and they put the majority of the capital uh, in the deal. And then I went raised, I did raise a little bit more money. And so really that kicked it off uh, with that group. And then um, just had some other relationships that, you know, they saw what I was doing and, um, one of the hotels that I did, that was one of the first ones I did with the same group I started with gotcha. that I got them a big, I got them $16 million of tax incentive on a big deal that they were doing in Idaho Falls. And so that was the group that, um, was a big investor with us, with me early on. And it just grew up from there. Um, just gradually with high net worth, friends and family would just get out there and, you know, go to events, try to explain what I'm doing, have other people introduce me to connections. And it just grew from that um, versus me going through the institutional world first. So you were doing, so you started, you started doing your own deals and having just like doing all the sweat. Like you were the, let me, were you getting like 50% of the deal, 10%, 20%? Yeah, it was usually uh, in the beginning, it was a 10% pref on a 70, 30 split. 
uh, where the investors got 70% after the um, after a pref of 10. But that I mean, that was early on, and most of our deals are the 80-20 typical structure that you see now in funds with a management fee. And back then, too, I would take a developer fee. I'd never take a management fee. We'd just take a yeah. development fee. And now we're ta- we have a obviously a management fee to manage the asset once it's open. So it just right. uh, sl- what was the- slowly. Oh, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, what was the first person you hired for your team? People always ask when they start a business, who do I hire first? So I have my opinion, but I'd be curious to hear what, what you uh, what you did. First person I hired was a guy I stole from a, a project I took over that was a whiz kid analyst. That's how I would do it too. That's what you need. Yeah, he was a finance guy, whiz. He just knew it and understood how to underwrite markets. It was it was perfect. He's our COO today. That's amazing. That's oh, awesome. I love that. Yeah, that's wonderful. And when when what year was this? When, when did you start doing this? You were, you came out of school. You were doing some accounting briefly, right? And then you did the city management stuff. Like, how far into your career did you start doing your own deals? And like, what time frame was this? So 2002 is when I started really jumping in and doing the consulting. I formed the company in 2003. Gotcha. So okay. 20 years, 20 years this year. You look, you look good. Congratulations. And then you came out of school like recently, like not that long before that or. Yeah, I, I graduated college in 94. So I okay. spent, you know, probably what, six years in city, six, seven years in city management after being a, you know, a stint, probably eight months as a working in an accounting firm. Yeah. Okay. So people freaking out and when they came out of school, they're not in like their dream job within the first three years. Like they, they should maybe relax a little bit. You never know where things are going to lead. Yeah. You get experiences from your first job. Honestly, some people stay in it because they've liked it. I was not, I, I liked the idea of accounting. I hated the work of an accountant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I hear you. And then, so it grew, it just kept growing. Like you, your deals kept performing. People yeah, started we, like, we hey. had some, we had some tough times that I had to recap the company a little bit um, just to keep up with growth. And so I brought in a partner in 07. Uh, we were 60, 40 partners. And then through 09, I was doing some stuff for another uh, large family office where they had some liquidity. They came into the company. And so us three partners now, I'm still the majority, but those three major partners, those two are passive. Mm-hmm. And then I have some of my management team has some ownership now that we've let them either buy in a piece or we provided a way for them to, to buy in. Mm-hmm. And what was like, tell us, take us through like the different iterations. Like when you were, you started out doing, you said the hotel deal was pretty, was it, did you stick with the hotels that you became known as a hotel guy or you just kind of got into whatever you could do? We just got, we were kind of whatever made sense, opportunistic. Uh, we'd really liked multifamily because that was one of the first big deals we did that we, we took over a broken deal. That's where I hired our, the analyst from is a broken deal. Um, if you guys know Sean Bradley, 
the big seven six yeah, yeah. basketball he's very player. Very tall. Very tall. Um, I, I grew up in New Jersey. He was on the Nets. He was a big. Oh guy. yeah. Oh yeah. So, Sean was an investor in it um, with a couple other local guys, and they just they hired the wrong person to put it together. And I was working with one of their partners on another deal. He said, "Hey, will you come look at this for us?" And we stepped in and kind of took a deal that had fallen apart and made it really successful. Um, and, and it was 500 multifamily units in right downtown Salt Lake. Oh, wow. So That's a big one. It was a 100 units per acre project, the highest density project at the time in downtown. Since wow. then, there's been bigger, much more density. We built more density than that. What are you seeing in, uh, I mean, Salt Lake City's become, what do they call it, uh, Silicon Lake or something? What do they call it? Uh, Silicon Slopes. Silicon Slopes. Yeah. Is that still happening? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a lot of a lot of tech companies moving into Utah and um, low, low unemployment. Still has a great environment for business here. Yeah. And there's a university and talent pool, so. Yeah. Well, there's three universities that are within you know of an hour of each other that have great talent pool between Brigham Young University U- the University of Utah and yeah. and, Univer- and Utah Valley University which believe yeah. it or not is the biggest university in the state at 48,000 students holy smokes I never yeah. even heard of it yeah it's a state university that they their enrollment is open enrollment and they've they've done really well so what does the company look like now as far as um, just how, head count? How, how large are you guys? And, and you said AUM's $2 billion. Um, is it ma- Did you say it was mainly hotels? Hotel multifamily. Probably 60% of our business is multifamily. And then 40% hospitality. And I'm always curious if you could give your younger self some advice that you think might have made, a little bit easy, made life a little bit easier for you kind of coming up the ladder. Is there anything that you could think of that you would tell yourself? Yeah, I, there's probably a couple of things. I'd probably say get more focused on a asset class at first and try to create the pin to the, the institutional investor platform earlier. Um, and then the other thing that I'm dealing with now is be careful what you wish for on growing because... <laughs> scalability is tough um, because when you're 12 guys like we were you know in 2011 2012 to today of 145 in the office and 1100 across the country managing properties the scalability and the systems you put into place matter and we did not do that early on and now we're trying to uh, play catch up and put those systems in place so we're more efficient. Yeah. And it's tough because we're still growing. We're still doing deals. We, we still have uh, good opportunities. And it, it just becomes a very um, painstaking task to, to try to put systems and scale into place where I can't, I don't know everything that's going on um, yeah. unless I spend 20 hours a day here. And you've yeah. got to tr- build something that you can trust your people that if they if they slip and fall back, that you can jump in and you can help them uh, and build that talent pool. So 
that's that's probably what I tell myself too is make systems that work smaller and as you grow you improve the systems like what type of system just communication systems or uh, accounting systems I would say that uh, yeah that I stayed on QuickBooks way too long I shouldn't yeah. have done it that was one system I should have implemented uh, probably four years before we did because um, we just need more robust as investors. But I would say any technology systems that help with any process like development, um, you know, a developer has, some of that comes with experience, right? And if we don't document some of the things that we've experienced that are bad, good, and indifferent, and nobody can access them, and we've got young development managers coming up, and they don't know any of that, I can't be with them or our, the, the president of development can't be with them all the time. And so if we have a database that they can have access to and they, and they have um, processes that certainly we have processes, but sometimes those process, processes aren't systematized that mm -hmm. force people to go through events. Uh, same with investment management. I mean, how do you, um, how do you prepare a, a PCAP statement or do you have to prepare every one of them on Excel document for yeah. 300 investors? Yeah. Uh, that takes a lot of time, a lot of inefficiencies. So systems make a big difference, but you have to have the right process in place before you throw that system in. So it's more challenging than you learn that in school. I'm sure you all learn that uh, the business organization and it's, it's harder than for me, it was a lot harder than, yeah, I had ever expected. Well, that's something we're trying to do. I mean, our firm is, we're, we're part of a bunch of larger firm, but our firm is 25 people or something. So I want to get those systems in place before, I mean, eventually we'll be, you know, five times the size of it. So it's much harder to do it at that point, I assume. My, my <laughs> advice is do spend the money now because it, it's, we just have headache after headache with, we're getting it fixed, but it's not easy. Yeah. And as you scale, when people leave, the institutional knowledge that goes with them, if you don't have it documented, is it could be catastrophic. So I agree with, I think that's, it's interesting because we keep seeing now, because deals are slowing down, everybody's focused on their systems. That feels like, you know, hang on to your whiz kids, whiz kids COO, because I think everybody's yep. looking yeah. for good you know, a good systems person and, and processes and procedures. So we got a lot of COO searches going on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, your CFO, our CFO is important as well, just from the, from an investor reporting and trust and making sure that the numbers and, and it's a different, it's a total different mindset, right? Your CFO and your COO are different. And sometimes they're so different that they collide and that's, you know, sometimes a challenge to get them to. It's not be fun for you. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe that collision, you know, I'm, I'm the eternal optimist. Maybe that collision is actually what produces yeah. the greatest success, right? Well, and that's what I was going to say. That you, they figure out thing, which is getting, they're figuring that out. It just makes it's the yin and the yang, and it's works really well. Well, you mentioned it being very cold out and, and snowy. Um, are you ready for the hot seat? 
Well, it depends on what the hot seat is, but I guess I'm ready for the hot seat. <laughs> Seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services, and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofits, startups, and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities reduce turnover and preserve their brands. They have also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So they outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe it doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com, K-K-R-E-S-E-T.com. You feel, you feel the heat rising in your office or wherever, wherever you are right now, right? What's that picture behind you, by the way? I kind of like it. That is my favorite hotel that we developed in St. George, Utah. It's called the Advenir. It's an autograph by Marriott. It's 60 rooms. It was a replica of a, um, a home that was built down there that uh, when the settlers of the of that town came down everybody that came from salt lake would stay in his house and so Uh-oh. it's a awesome and it it's one of the best restaurants and got a best in state restaurant um this last really? year well, yeah we ever love it. atlanta lisa we know what to call I'm in. exactly well, question number one do you have a book and or podcast recommendation well i don't listen to a lot of podcasts and I don't right. read a lot of a lot of books, but the one book that I that I have read that I really liked was the one, um, the Richard Branson. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. I can't remember what it was called, but um, it was one that talked about, you know, his growing up and why he started Virgin Records and just that creative creativity. Yeah, yeah, of that. yeah. That's awesome. What is your most memorable deal that you've done? And the one right one behind me. Who knows? <laughs> uh, okay. I, I love it. So it, it's. How a, did you forget it? It's right behind you. <laughs> it took us a long time. It we had to assemble a lot of properties, and with the hotel, we actually built 110 apartments on a a ground zero a block in St. George, Utah, where it was all dilapidated. So it's what makes you excited about being in the development space, and it is a great return. Sometimes your passions don't pan out but we've had a great return from it what was your what were you passionate about you just like the way it, the, the feel of it and where it was just located? the i yeah the where it was at but the idea of redeveloping that area and bringing something and so the autograph brand we got to create the brand itself and that mm. was fun just to be able to bring the historic um a bunch of historic stuff back into the downtown that wasn't there and gotcha. creating a block where people can gather. And it's so cool to see it. Um, it was in the, we were ground zero for the world. Um, the, uh, what's the triathlon? The Ironman. Ironman, yes. The okay. tw- 2021 World Ironman, because they couldn't hold it in Hawaii. They held oh. it in St. George, Utah. And we were ground zero. And everything happened right there. It was so cool to see. 
Did you run it? Did you, did you participate? Me? Yeah. No. At 200, <laughs> uh, 270 pounds, I would be the biggest Clydesdale ever to run an Ironman. <laughs> well, it would have been but impressive. It sounds like great marketing to say if you can't go to Hawaii. Yeah. Come to St. George. Yeah. What uh? What do you look? Were you talking about hiring and how important that is? Um, like, what is the culture there? What do you look for in hiring folks? I look for creativity, somebody that is self motivated, and they have to have transparency. And and those are really the three things I look at. If they can be creative, and I don't need to have them feel like I need to tell them everything to do, but they can be a self starter or self motivated. And we always love transparency of what's happening. And do you have a go-to interview question that you ask? Yeah, I mean, it changes every time, but it has something to do with creativity of, you know, what, as a kid uh, growing up, what are some of the most creative things that you've done or built um, or experienced? That's pretty cool. We're going to use that one. Someone, like someone used uh, on the answer to that question with, tell me, they, they always ask, tell me a joke to the people they're interviewing. And because they find they, it kind of gets their, you know, puts them on the spot. It gets them, can they, it, you got to have a level of risk to like put a joke on. Yeah. And you got to be, even if you don't know, it's like, you got to think it through because they don't expect everyone to know like the joke, but it's like thinking it through. How do they react on the, you know, when they can't? They get through the shutdown or something, you know. I think those are it's a pretty interesting one. So now I always have a joke ready. Um, my uh, my my worry is all my jokes would be dirty, and I'd I'd probably know, not yeah, get I the know. interview. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> how do you yeah? How do you normally go about like what's what's been the most difficult type of hire? I always find like property operational side of things is really hard to keep employees happy. I'm not sure why that is. Um, it just seems to be a lot of turnover in that space. Yeah, I, I think some of the more difficult ones for us to hire that um, is lately has been our FP&A, uh, financial planning and analytics, because it takes the right type of person to do that. Mm. We can hire underwriting analysts out of school and they can get it because they're just they just know spreadsheets. Mm. Um, and so really one of our difficulties has been the FP&A side because it is a different, there's not, it's it just, accountants are good at it, but they're sometimes not because they don't understand the planning side of it and the analytics side of it. Mm. So at, at the corporate level and then at property levels, you're right, it's finding the good leasing person that can, you know, lease a property up and not. Yeah have to be managed, micromanaged. Yeah. yeah. So this is the Impact Real Estate Podcast. How do you feel your real estate or your job have had an impact on the world? Well, hopefully employing, you know, almost 1,200 people, over 1,200 people is, is impacting the world. But I'm also hoping some of our strategies with the converting uh, hospitality is a class B workforce housing is allowing, you know, the workforce to have something that they can live yeah. in where they can't afford this 
the high rents in Class A properties, and then just the the overall, you know, providing uh, leisure travel for yeah. people in resorts is hopefully a big impact. But I would probably say the biggest impact is employing as many people as we employ and hopefully yeah. keeping them employed. Do you find I, I I'm as an investor myself, not like I, I've always find class B multifamily to be the, it's a pretty, it's a good one to very safe one to be in. That it is. Seems to be, yeah. I like that one the best too. It is. It's also probably your, it's one of the more difficult ones to manage though. So your cost to manage it versus a, a class A is a little bit more expensive, but it is, it's, it's stable that class B because the workforce is always going to, they're always going to be there. Yeah. So Cameron Gunter, CEO of Peg Companies, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Yes, thank you. I enjoyed it.